But Colossians 1, starting in verse 15. Let me read these words for us. Paul here is speaking of Jesus, and he says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is God's word. I wonder if you have noticed in our day certain celebrities being referred to as the goat, the goat. Uh, How many of you have heard this reference being used? When I first heard it, I thought maybe it was a derogatory thing, that it was a bad thing that people were saying. But actually, it is a compliment. It is an acronym standing for greatest of all time. Now, recently, I heard Pastor Caleb asked if he knew what the GOAT stood for. And he very confidently said, sure, absolutely. It means uh, greater than all the rest. And I said, no, that would be Gatator. This is GOAT, greatest of all time. Though it's a new phrase, it actually originates back to the 90s uh, with when I was two years old, as John likes to remind me, uh, originated with Muhammad Ali's wife when she was seeking to copyright all of Muhammad Ali's intellectual property. She copyrighted it under GOAT, Greatest of All Time Incorporated, and now it is used to refer to people who are the best in their realm. So Steve Jobs was the goat of computer technology. Pavarotti was the goat of opera. Tom Hanks is the goat of modern acting. And on and on we could go. When you have these people in your room, you have the supreme person in their field of expertise. We tend in our culture to be people-oriented. We live in a celebrity culture, people who are, we think are worth celebrating. We're always looking to the great people, and we're always looking for who the next great person will be so that we can be like them, look to them, emulate them. But could it be that instead of our eyes scanning this way, our eyes should actually be going upward? What if there is someone that is so great so majestic, so supreme, that we need not look to anyone else or look for anyone else. Paul here in these verses, in verse 15 through 20, is laying out for us the identity of the most supreme and glorious person who ever was and ever will be, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And as we get into these verses, we are actually getting into the very heart of Paul's letter here to the Colossians. These are, these are the foundational verses that lay out the rest of where Paul is going to head and his argument for this letter. And I think it's helpful for us to remember the context of why Paul wrote the letter to the Colossians. It's clear that Paul was looking at Colossae, the little city, and he was concerned about the influence of the uh, secular philosophies that were a reality there in that city and false religions that were prominent in that city as well. He was uh, concerned about how they were creeping in to the church. If you take a look at verse 13 and 14 from last week, he said that uh, Christ, God, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. It must have been that there were people in the Colossian church who were saying, yeah, it's good. It's good that we have Jesus who has given us redemption. It's good that in him we have forgiveness of sins. But we've got to move on from that. If we really want to have true spiritual fulfillment, if we want to really have full spiritual satisfaction and fullness, there's more than Jesus that we need to look to. And Paul writes now to say, no, 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 no. You have to look nowhere else but to the Lord Jesus because he is fullness himself. He is the supreme one. Jesus, he is saying, is supreme Lord over all. I'm sure, as you noticed, as we read these verses, these are not easy verses, but they are very important verses. There are certain mountain peak passages within the scriptures that take us up to the very heights, going to the heights of the glory of God. And this is one of those passages that's taking us up into the utter heights of the glory of the person of Jesus Christ. And just as when you're hiking the highest mountain peaks, you have to watch your step and watch your oxygen levels, we're going to have to be careful and do some hard work as we unpack these verses because many throughout history have lost their step in seeking to understand these verses and fallen into errors such as Jehovah's Witnesses, the cult, or even the Universalists love to use these passages to find truths that aren't actually contained in them. But uh, Paul is making his argument absolutely clear. The point of the text is Jesus is supreme Lord over all. And as the supreme Lord, he begins by showing us that Jesus is supreme because Jesus is the Lord God. Take a look at verse 15. How does he begin? He begins by showing us that he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. He is the image of God. Now, when we think about the image of God, where do our minds usually go in the Bible? Genesis 1, right? That Adam and Eve and all of humanity after them have been made in God's image. But the problem is Adam and all the rest of humanity have failed to live up to the image of God because we have disobeyed God and fallen into sin. And now the image of God that we bear is marred and distorted. But Jesus, Paul is showing us, is the pure image of God who never fails because he himself is God. If you want to know what God is like, if you want to know who God is, you must do so through the person of Jesus. 
God is invisible, and through Christ's coming in the incarnation, he has made the invisible God visible through his person. John, when he wrote in his gospel in chapter 1, verse 18, he said, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's right hand, Jesus, he has made him known. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 1, verse 3, puts it like this, he, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. If you want to know God, look to Jesus. I think this is so significant for us to consider when we are talking, about unbel- uh, talking to unbelievers about God, whether it be unbelieving family members or friends, neighbors, coworkers, that when we talk to unbelievers about God, we should be using the name of Jesus as much as we possibly can. Uh, my wife and I, for our last anniversary, we decided that we would meet at a particular restaurant after work together uh, so that we could celebrate our wedding anniversary. But one thing that we didn't realize is that the restaurant had two different locations. (laughs) And so though we were talking the same name of the restaurant, we ended up in two totally different places. I think that's what happens a lot when we as Christians sometimes are talking to unbelievers about God. We should never assume just because someone is speaking the name God that they mean the same God that we mean. We have to put Jesus' name upon God when we are speaking of him in order to get to the truth of who God really is. Jesus himself taught his own divine nature and that he understood himself as the one who was revealing God. Do you remember the incident in John chapter 14 when Philip, one of his disciples, said, Lord, show us the Father, show us God, and it's enough for us. And Jesus replied, showing that Philip didn't quite understand. He said, have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. If we would skip ahead to verse 19, Paul's going to say, in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. All his character, all his attributes, all of his divine nature pleased to dwell in God. Bottom line, God can only be truly known and related to through Jesus. You may be here this morning as someone who appreciates the being of God in a general sense, or perhaps you like to think that, uh, you know, there's a little bit of all the world religions that God fits into, and uh, you just kind of have to piece them together by looking at all of them to try to make sense. But the Bible is absolutely clear that it is Jesus. Jesus is the one through whom we understand God and relate to God. Well, Paul now goes on, now that he's said that he is God, he's going to show us that Jesus, as God, is Lord supreme over two things. He is Lord of creation, and he is Lord of what we might call the new creation, the new creation. Two mountain peaks of Jesus' glory that he's going to take us to, mountain peak one, three verses on God being Lord over creation, 
and then three verses of Jesus being Lord supreme over the new creation. First, he shows us Jesus is Lord over all creation. Take a look again at verse 15. In verse 15, he goes on to call Jesus the firstborn of all creation. Now, we have to be clear in what Paul means by that phrase, firstborn of all creation. If you've ever had a Jehovah's Witness show up at your door and you've tried to challenge them with the identity of who Jesus is, this is one of the verses that they will point to to show you, oh no, Jesus can't be God because it says right here that he's the firstborn of all, create, uh, all creation. So therefore, he was a created being and oh, created beings can't be God. But what Jehovah's Witnesses fail to understand is how the word firstborn was understood and used in the biblical times. Firstborn was used as a royal term in biblical times. It was used to refer to an heir of something. So for instance, in Psalm 89, verse 27, God speaks about great King David, the king who was the greatest king over all of the, all of the nations as he ruled over the kingdom of God. And God says of David, I will make him my firstborn. What does that mean? The, the highest of the kings of the earth. Paul is saying here that Jesus is king of creation. He is the heir of all the created realm. Why? Because, verse 16, he is the creator. Take a look at verse 16. Who is the creator of all things? Jesus. Paul says, by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Everything that exists in this world that we can see and everything that we can't see in the spiritual realm has as its origin, has as its creator, the Lord Jesus himself. Again, John's gospel in chapter 1, verse 3 said, all things were made through him, and without him was not made anything that was made. But not only has everything been created by him, but Paul goes on in verse 16 to clarify that all things were also created for him. Verse 16, he ends by saying, all things were created through him, and for him. Everything that exists in the universe is created for the glory of Jesus. Everything that we can see, everything that is part of the created realm, invisible and visible, has been made to make Jesus look magnificent, to make him look glorious, and has been made for his purposes. So when you hold that newborn baby and you're looking at the wonder of those 10 little fingers, 10 little toes, you look into those bright blue baby eyes, what is that meant to lead you to? You're meant to say, look at the wonder of this. Who could do this? And it's meant to lead us to the Lord Jesus. But when you're walking on that perfect spring afternoon, Lord, make them come soon. 
that bright blue sky up above, the fluffy white clouds, all the flowers popping with their colors, the wind carrying the smell of fresh mown grass. All of that is meant for us to pause and say, who could make such a thing possible and draw us to the glory of the one who made it and made it for himself, for the Lord Jesus? When Paul says that all things were created through Jesus and for him, he is helping us to understand that your existence is not a mystery. You can know where you came from. Who made you? Why are you the way that you are in all your uniqueness? It's Jesus. He is the one who wrote the manufacturer's instruction manual for your life. He is the one for whom you were meant to live. He made you for himself. I don't know why you're here this morning. Maybe your parents drug you in. Maybe you're here because you feel like your life is a wreck and you figure a church building is a good place to go to try to get your life back in order. But if you're here this morning, you feel broken, you feel empty. Could it be that that emptiness can only be filled by finding your ultimate identity and purpose in the one who made you and made you for himself, the person of Jesus? Listen to what an old pastor named Thomas Boston said. This is a great quote. He said, the heart of man is an empty, hungry thing. When people do not have their desired satisfaction in one thing, they go to try to make it up in another. But the misery is that there's dissatisfaction in that thing too. And so this directs us to that which infallibly fills up what is missing, in which there is no dissatisfaction. Jesus is the fountain of all perfection. And whatever is desirable to us is eminently found in him. Jesus is the purpose for which we are to find our lives. And to try to find the purpose of our lives in anything else other than Jesus, it's like trying to flavor our coffee with Tabasco sauce. To try to find our ultimate purpose in life outside of Jesus, it's like trying to run your car on diesel fuel. It just won't, it won't ever taste quite right. And things just won't run the way they should because it's Jesus to whom we are to look. Our identity is intimately wrapped up in the identity of Jesus. Well, Jesus has created us and he has created us for himself. And Paul goes on in verse 17 to also say that in him, Everything is sustained by him. Not only were we made by him and for him, but we are sustained by him. In verse 17, take a look. He says, he, Jesus, is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Jesus is sovereignly upholding and controlling all things in the universe. And the all things in verse 17 really means all things. Jesus is sovereign over all. What is he sovereign over? Well, he's sovereign over the big things of the world, like what is mentioned in verse 16. Thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities, all of human history, 
God has sovereignly been working in and through the Lord Jesus to bring about his purposes and plans for the world. Kingdoms have risen. Kingdoms have fallen. Rulers have come. Rulers have gone. Nations have existed. Nations have been wiped out. Presidents have come. Presidents have gone. But one has never been up for re-election, the Lord Jesus. He is Lord supreme over all. He's sovereign over the big things. He's sovereign over the small things. Charles Spurgeon used to say to his congregation, there is not a dust mite that is floating around this sanctuary that is not being divinely uh, moved by the Lord Jesus. He is the one in whom all things hold together. And what a joy it is to know this about our Savior that our lives aren't ultimately chaotic, random, but that all things are being done by him and for him and through him, and he is committed to our good. Why is it, just as Joan said, that when Christians have their funerals, unbelievers are confused by the note of joy and singing because they don't understand that the great hope and, and security there is and knowing that the Savior is the one who is sovereign over all. It's Christ's uh, sovereignty that is the anchor of our lives when everything seems to be giving way. And think of all the suffering that you're facing in your life today, all of the discouragements that you're facing. Put verse 16 and 17 as a banner over it all. This is from him. This is through him. And he will sustain me through all of this. Jesus is the Lord of creation. Uh, Paul is going to go on now to move on to what we could say. Uh, Jesus, is being, uh, Jesus is Lord of the new creation. The new creation. Now, uh, verses 18 through 20 are difficult verses. Uh, the commentaries have dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of pages on what these verses mean and what these verses don't mean. Uh, the top Greek scholars in the world are not shy to admit that Paul's uh, sentence structure, especially in verse 19 and 20, is difficult to translate and difficult to interpret. And uh, context is helpful for us in understanding what he's talking about. Paul is really talking about the unfolding of the kingdom of Christ that is to come. Uh, if you look back to what we looked at last week in verse 13, if you look up to verse 13, notice the context was Paul talking about how we've been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son. Now he's picking up again in verses 18 to 20, kingdom language. And sometimes it takes a whole Bible to understand just one passage. And I think this is certainly one of those passages. When the Bible talks about the kingdom of God more broadly, it teaches that the kingdom of God uh, has an already and a not yet aspect to it. There are things about the kingdom of Christ that are already happening and we look forward to things that are not yet. For instance, the kingdom of God is already in the sense that Jesus is presently ruling spiritually 
over the church, the people who belong to him by faith. But it is not yet in the sense that Jesus one day will rule physically over all things when he returns. When he returns, uh, there is going to be uh, perfect righteousness. He's going to judge evil once and for all and uh, bring about final uh, peace and righteousness and justice. And he's going to create a whole new created order, what we call the new creation, a new heavens, a new earth. We're going to raise again uh, in newness of life. And the foreshadow of that great and ultimate day is unfolding today in the church. We are the beginning of Christ's kingdom uh, being unfolded as his people that he is ruling over spiritually. And it is with the church that uh, Paul begins in verse 18. Take a look at verse 18. Who is Lord over this thing that we call the church? In verse 18, Paul, using his favorite analogy for the church as the body of Christ, says, he is the head of the body, the church. He is the Lord of the church. He is its head. Now, I've heard of people surviving without particular limbs. I've heard of people surviving uh, certain organ transplants. But I have yet to hear anyone survive when, to quote my favorite sitcom, their kappa gets detated from right off their body. I have yet to hear of anyone survive without their head. How does a church begin to disintegrate? How does a church begin to lose its life? When it replaces the lordship of Jesus as laid out in the scriptures with their own will, with their own desires, when it starts taking the things of the world and, and planting them rather than under the lordship of Jesus with the church. Church history shows time and time again the church has lost its power of witness and it has degenerated into immorality every time that the church has uh, superimposed something else other than Jesus as its head. And it's a good reminder just for us to, 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 to remind ourselves, Grace Church is Jesus' church. It's not Adam Swift's church. It's not John Smith's church. It's not Caleb Russell's church. It's not Charlie Hershey's church. It's God's church under the lordship of Jesus. I'm so thankful for the elders and pastors that we have who remind me of this every single day time I talk with them. We had a great elder team meeting last Thursday. These men live under the lordship of Jesus. They want to serve him, and they remind me of my role to be a servant leader all the time. It is Jesus is the, uh, Jesus is the one who dictates how we do things as a church, how we do church. Remember again the, the Colossian context. There were people in Colossae who were coming to the church and saying, hey, there's this new awesome philosophy out there that's really taking off. And I think that if you would bring it into your church, your little church there in Colossae would get a whole lot bigger. And, and there's, there's these new spiritual practices too, asceticism and, and, and all these other things. If you brought them in, Oh, your church would get a whole lot younger. You would start just blowing up all over the place. It would be incredible. And Paul writes to remind the Colossians, Jesus is the head. Do things according to his blueprint. 
And Jesus is uh, using us in his church to be a representation of what earth will be like one day when he returns to reign supreme. We are a foretaste of the coming kingdom. We're just a taste of coming attractions. So that if people want to know what is it going to be like when Jesus comes back, that perfect state of righteousness and peace and holiness and godliness and love, people should be able to point to 300 Willow Valley Square and say, if you go and you move and, and live among those people, you'll get a taste of the coming kingdom. And it's that coming kingdom that Paul moves on to in verse 19 and 20. In verse 19 and 20, Paul writes, in him, excuse me, verse, uh, the tail end of verse 18, he says, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. There is coming a day where all the saints will be risen on the great resurrection day of Jesus' return. The resurrection that has been secured for us by him being the firstborn, the king of the resurrection himself, being the first to overcome uh, the grave by his own power. And when that day comes, verse 19, in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. When that day comes, everything is going to be reconciled to him Everything will be put under subjection to his great lordship. There is coming a day, as Paul writes in Philippians, where every knee will bow, every tongue will confess on earth, under the earth, in heaven, that Jesus Christ is Lord. And how has that begun? That is begun at the tail end of verse 20 because he has made peace by the blood of his cross. See, when Jesus died on the cross, he made our reconciliation with God possible so that if we want to make peace with God, we can't do it in and of ourselves, but we must do it through the blood of Jesus, shed on our behalf, which we're going to remember together through the bread and cup. He has paid the price for sin so that all who trust in him might be reconciled to God. And on that great day, it is only, only those who have trusted in Christ who will be received into his kingdom by grace. Others will be reconciled and subjected to his lordship by judgment and will confess that he is Lord, even unwillingly. But today, the door of grace is open for you to Make peace with God to be reconciled to him by trusting in the work that Christ alone has done. When Jesus died on the cross, he was purchasing more than just our souls. He was purchasing his lordship over the whole created realm that when he comes, all things will be put in subjection to him. So to conclude all of this, friends, Jesus is supreme Lord over all. He is Lord of creation. He's the one who made you, and he has made you for himself. And you can trust him in his sovereignty that he, his hands are ever upon you in love and care, and he can be trusted. And he is Lord over the new creation. He is Lord of this church 
Let us live together under his lordship as he asks us to, and let us trust that he is going to accomplish all of his plans to bring his kingdom into fruition, that when he says he's coming back to make all things new, he really means he's coming back to make all things new, and that that day he says, praise God, is coming soon. I think of my favorite line from the hymn, This is my father's world. This is my father's world. The battle is not done. Jesus, who died, shall be satisfied, and earth and heaven be one. We look forward to that day. Well, as we close together, we're going to remind ourselves of Jesus' great sacrifice that made reconciliation uh, with God possible for us and gave us peace with God in and through his blood by partaking of the bread and cup. But before we do that, we're going to sing a song together to prepare our hearts. So why don't we pray before we sing?